0: Welcome to Word from the Herd, produced and brought to you by the Kimmel Foundation for Recovering Leadership. Welcome to Word from the Herd. I'm your host, Thomas Hill, and I am really excited because today I'm being joined by Mick Cornett, the former mayor of Oklahoma City. Now, if you're not from Oklahoma City or you were just asleep for a number of years, you might not know all of the things that that Mick accomplished in his time here. Uh, Mick has a lot of awards uh, to his name, just a few that I want to mention. Newsweek magazine called him one of the five most innovative mayors in the United States. Uh, He was named Public Official of the Year uh, by Governing Magazine, placed on Politico's 50 thinkers, doers, and visionaries transforming American politics, and one I think is outstanding. Fortune magazine named him to the 2018 list of the world's 50 greatest leaders. Just phenomenal for a mayor from Oklahoma City, the Bible. That one's a little over the top. I don't don't think so. Who am I to argue with Fortune? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you should, yeah. You also might not know that he produced, wrote, and directed an award-winning documentary, uh, Oklahoma City, The Boom, the Bust, and the Bomb. That was released in 2015, and he has a book out called The Next American City. So been very busy uh, since you were mayor, and we're very busy while you were mayor. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's good to be here. I look forward to this conversation. As I think about your leadership, Mick, uh, of Oklahoma City and all the years that, that and by the way, uh, I think you still hold the record for being the mayor longer than anybody else right. and probably several records for being elected by what were fundamentally landslide votes. I mean, obviously you were doing something great because you got elected by a higher percentage year over year over year. It was just just outstanding. Um Let's talk a little bit about kind of some of the biggest things that happened in Oklahoma City, which a lot of those surround the MAPS projects and the revitalization of Oklahoma City and the vision you have had for that. Leaders, all leaders have vision. Uh, It's not unusual for leaders to have vision, but it is unusual for leaders to be able to communicate that vision clearly and get a lot of people on board and you did that from a position where you didn't really have the power to force anything to happen, just one vote on the city council. So tell me about that. Tell me about the beginnings of that and kind of how, how that came mm-hmm. about. Well, I was
1: elected in 2004. Uh, you know, Oklahoma City, I, I felt like was a little, really a, a sleeping giant. My predecessors had done a great job of kind of planting seeds and, and putting Oklahoma City in a place where it could have a robust economy. But our own bankers, our own developers were leery. You know, if you don't have to be too old in Oklahoma to have gone through a bust or two. And, and, and people are ex- extremely cautious about, about putting projects out. And so I was trying to get our own business leaders, first of all, to believe like I did in, this, in the city of Oklahoma City's future. You know, you can't get the rest of the world on board until you get your, your own people on board. And so I had a little success there. And I also, uh, you know, b- believe that we had a, a branding problem. We'd been branded by tragedy. Uh, the bombing in, in uh, 1995 took our name. It was called the Oklahoma City Bombing, which in a in a strange sense almost sounds like a sports team, you know? I mean, you, you, <laughs> you said the words Oklahoma City, and those images of that horrific day were what people came to mind. And I noticed as I was traveling the country and introducing myself as the mayor of Oklahoma City, I could see the people's faces i could see their eyes and i knew that i'd lost i'd lost them for a moment because they were flashing back to the to the images of that day and i thought how am i going to create an economy out of sympathy because people felt sorry for us right and they really didn't know when that event had happened but it was the last time they'd ever even thought about oklahoma city because we hadn't really given them anything to to take notice of nationally and so that's when i started going to new york and started visiting with the commissioners of the nba and the nhl about the wisdom of putting a team in oklahoma city and and so you know that's a a whole nother story perhaps a whole nother podcast but but recognizing that the brand had been damaged and that we had been branded by tragedy i think was a significant step in in my development as a leader because i realized first of all fundamentally we have to address that um so, so here you have Oklahoma City in 2004, and you have a wounded brand, and you have cautious bankers and cautious developers, and even though the city had invested incredible amounts of money, uh, Oklahoma City's business community wasn't necessarily investing so that those could be catalysts. Um, and so um, uh, slowly by slow, slowly and slowly, one, one by one, started happening. And I started getting an audience whenever I could to address the branding image and to talk optimistically about Oklahoma City's future because, you know, you can't get the ball rolling until you, you move the ball. And, and so that was my goal in the early days.
0: Uh, start, start explaining why I thought we were set to succeed. That's outstanding. You know, one of the things that I, I just heard you say that I think is so fundamental, you said one by one, And you would take any opportunity to talk to somebody that might have influence or or might be a part of this revitalization and i imagine there were hundreds if not thousands of those conversations (laughs) and so one of the things that i think leaders often fail i know i often think to myself well i have said this a hundred times but i probably need to say it a thousand times and i need (laughs) to say it to a bunch of different people in a bunch of different ways and a lot of those communications are most effective when they're one-on-one, when you can really relate to a person as opposed to addressing an audience or as leaders, we tend to go, well, if I can get everybody in the room, I'll tell everybody the same thing at one point and Mm -hmm. everybody will get it. And that doesn't actually happen. Right. You've got to stay on message over and over and over until you're tired of saying it. You got to stay on message. That's fantastic. Um, Talk a little bit, you know, in any vision, in any large project, um, you have the way you're seeing it as a leader or maybe as a group of leaders um, but it's going to take a lot of people to get anything of, of, of significance done. There had to be a lot of give and take probably a lot of things that the that the rank and file in Oklahoma City would never have even heard happened. Um, tell us a little bit about how that how that went for you and, and maybe what you learned in that process of, of you know, when, when do you give and when do you really just say, hey, I really need you to come on board yeah. this way? Well, I'm, I'm not
1: good at asking for help. And, uh, you know, that's, that I've always had this, this problem with just trying to do too much myself. And, but one of the opportunities you have when, when you're the mayor of Oklahoma City, and, and I would assume it's this way in other cities as well, maybe to a lesser extent, but the entire business community wants you to be successful the the city council in, in our in our sense wanted the mayor to be successful and i think that's so critical uh the city staff wanted the mayor to be successful i just happen to be the mayor but they all in in kind of in in this in this unity wanted the mayor to be successful and i can't tell you how how important that is i i've uh, counseled other mayors in other environments and asked them a few questions just to try to get the culture of what they're facing and what i see is People aren't on board. In other words, the council may not want them to be successful. The staff may not want them to be successful. You know, there's that, that old remark from city staff that mayors come and go, you know, and, and uh, we'll, we'll outlast him, you know, or, or her. You know, I mean, and so I think that shows, you know, just a real problem. Oklahoma City, though, had a kind of a series of events in, in our lifetime um, punctuated by the bombing, which I think created more unity in other places, and so there, there, were, there were great opportunities to get people on board. And what I, what I quickly learned is that, um, that you know, the, it, it, people really notice if you're not trying to, tra- trying to take credit for success. I always use the pronoun we. If you ever heard me say I in a public setting, it was a mistake. It was a slip. I always said we. And I always wanted people to understand that my only agenda was for the city of Oklahoma City and in the best interest of Oklahoma City and everything I did or or sought, you know, positive attention for. I never called a press conference to make myself look good. And, um, And I called press conferences to accentuate the efforts and successes of other people. And I think people tend to notice that. Uh, but I, I think a, a leader can easily fall into the category of thinking it's about them and, and trying to draw positive attention to themselves. The way I look, and I think the leader of any organization would look, if the organization is successful, they're going to get the credit. I mean, they'll probably have to push it back if the organization is super right, successful. Right. But don't put yourself in a situation where your followers feel like you're trying to attract attention and you're trying to make it about
0: yourself. That is that is gold right there, Mick. I, and and one of the things that I always appreciated about you when you were in office uh, was exactly that. I, I people do notice. I noticed that. I noticed that uh, it wasn't about you. It was about the city. Um, I can remember as both a teenager and a young young person um, going downtown uh, in the evenings, and it was a ghost town, right? The only people downtown. What were you doing down there? Well,
1: there wasn't anything that should have attracted you to downtown.
0: Well, um, I was very into photography when I was Ooh. younger, and one of the things I love to do was take um, evening, dusk, and even nighttime pictures in, in a an urban setting. You know, the city is so interesting. The buildings become completely different places at night, and streetlights and things like that. You remember the old Klein Hotel? I did a whole photographic study of of that building just it was just an iconic building but so we were down there a lot and the place was dead and I remember as as the work that you and the city council and the other leaders in Oklahoma City did as things started happening and and now I we go downtown to eat in the evenings and there's all kinds of things happening and there's it's just it's phenomenal and I can't remember a single time that I ever saw you stand up and go look what I did what I always saw you do was stand up and say, "Look what Oklahoma City has done. Look what we have accomplished. Look where we are now, and and how wonderful this is." So, so that's that's spectacular. I also, you know, love hearing you, you know, talk about um, getting other people involved. What I really kind of heard you say was, you almost want your team to, for it to be their idea, for it to be what they're working on. Mm-hmm. Now, you said that you kind of inherited a city council and a staff that wanted you to be successful, but that had to be maintained, right? I mean, you were in office for a long time. So talk to me a little bit about some of the things that, that leaders need to do to, to keep that momentum. Or if you're a leader who doesn't have that, who is not currently enjoying being supported, you know, wanting you to be successful, how do, how do you get people to want well, that?
1: What, what I noticed was that the city staff really appreciated that it sounded like I had their back in any public forum in a city council meeting. There's no, there's no uh, shortage of opportunities to criticize the city staff. You know, when you, you know, you you can pick up 99.9% of the garbage and only one house is going to complain. And that's the one that didn't get their garbage picked up. And you're never going to hear somebody call and say, Hey, thank you for picking up my garbage today. So, so all you really hear is the, the, the handful of negative situations that are created by, you know, inactivity or just, you know, a computer mistake or, or someone just didn't get the job done. But I made sure that I, 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 and I, you know, there may have been a time or two when I slipped, but I, I always tried to never criticize the staff in public. There may have been something sometime in a closed meeting. I said, look, we got to do better than this. Uh, but, but I, I, I never wanted to ha- have the city staff here that I was, I was against them too because you know, they, they don't get that much feedback and when they do, it's probably not good. Um, and you know when, when, you, uh, when you open a city council meeting and the room is full, that's not a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> People aren't lining up to get into a city council meeting to tell you what a great job everybody's doing. There's something going on that has negativity. And while I, I mentioned the word negativity, I also think it's important to keep as much positive energy in a city as you can. You know, from time to time, we ask citizens to go vote on something. And generally, they got to make something happen. It might, you know, we got to find the funding. It might be a tax on on sales tax. It might be, you know, just another bond issue that keeps the same capacity as previously. But anyway, they got to go vote yes. And I've always felt like, you know, if you want someone to go vote yes, first of all, you got to convince them because it's easy to get somebody to vote no. You don't have to. You don't have to tell them much to get them to vote no if that's your if that's your effort. But but negative energy never never produced anything that was going to move a city forward. And so I was um, very intent on on positive energy and creating a environment where people could have faith in local government and its ability to perform small task and big task. And I, I'll tell you who helped me understand that was, was Ron Norick, one of my predecessors. Uh, he he authored and pushed the original maps, 1993. He's Ron is kind of the George Washington of Oklahoma City in my book. But anyway, he told me the problem he faced in getting people to vote yes on that original maps proposal wasn't that people didn't see the value of a penny and they get all this stuff. They get a baseball stadium and a canal and a new sports arena. They get all this stuff and it costs them a penny. They could see that. The problem he faced was they couldn't imagine city government performing all those tasks. In other words, how is a city government that is struggling to hire police officers and firefighters and doing all these um, you know, relatively routine things how are they going to build a stadium? How are they going to build an arena or start building dams in the river? You know, they just didn't have the, the, the capacity to, to perform these tasks. And he said, We had to, we had to create confidence in City Hall. And that's where I realized that, that that was important and uh, that we needed to maintain that. We had, by the time I became mayor, we had generated some faith. Uh, that w- that we had we had done what we said we were going to do time and time again, and that was very important. That that trust that the voters had had you know applied and assigned to us um, was was kept intact. And when the next mayor came on board, I wanted the citizens to have that same faith in in the government going forward.
0: That's outstanding. You know, a lot of leaders of organizations take my organization, for instance, as CEO of Kim Ray, it would be easy for me to fail to understand that I need to earn the people that I'm leading's trust. Because unlike a mayor of a city where you have to get people to vote on things and they can kind of go their own way, you really can't force anybody in the city to do. The people who work for me, if you don't do what I want, I have the option to not have you work for me anymore. Uh So I do have, I do kind of have some power, but but that is really a poor way to get people to do things. And and in order to get people on board, we as leaders really do have to earn people's trust. And that means, as you said, doing what we said we would do. I, I don't know that a lot of leaders actually approach it thinking, well, I have to earn this person's trust. Another way make, is I have to earn this person's respect as a leader. Positional power is is not very good power to wield but a lot of leaders tend to re, re, you know kind of move towards that because it's easy in the first part mm-hmm. you didn't have positional power with a lot of things you were trying to accomplish and so you know you got to be uh, obviously very very good at relational power you know, you know convincing yeah, people
1: right so positional power the office of the mayor has you know a certain level of authority but constitutionally there's very little authority which you alluded to earlier in the conversation and i tried to use that to my advantage. In other words, what I noticed was that in a city where the mayor had a lot of authority, there were always people trying to keep him in check and trying to control the, the number of things that they were trying to accomplish. Oklahoma City's mayoral authority is so small that no one actually believes that that's all the mayor should be doing. Because uh, you, have, you have so little um, uh, structured authority. And so what I did is I looked for voids. Who's not leading in this area? Well, I can do it. I'm the mayor. I mean, I, I could assume that, that leadership void. Um, and, and over time, I think, I think people kind of appreciated that. But um, I, I, I almost thought that the fact that the mayor had so little actual authority gave me an advantage that I could just kind of assume any area that I wanted to work on <laughs> and, and, you know, let somebody challenge it. Right and you know it very rarely happened, um, because they they all expect the mayor to do something. They don't expect the mayor to just show up on Tuesdays and, and vote with the rest of the council. That may have been the thought in the 1930s when it was, you know, designed. But that's that's hardly the expectation today.
0: Absolutely. Well, and and again for for leaders of of you know profitable you know profit organizations or even nonprofit organizations, it would seem to me that kind of. In, in some ways pretending that you don't have positional authority all the time would would kind of realign the way we think about approaching the people that we serve and getting them on board. I think that that's a that's an outstanding thing, a, a phenomenal thing. I love stories, Mick. you got I mean my goodness, you' were mayor forever and ever. you've got to have some great stories. Um, tell us a story about a time where, where you know and you can pick, maybe you, you feel like you really did a good job or maybe, it was one of those times when, after it was over, you said, okay, I, I learned mm-hmm. something from that. But, but tell us some, you know, give me a story about uh, moments in your, in your time as mayor where, where things really worked or where they didn't work, something that, that you could share with, with the people that are listening.
1: Well, um, uh, I learned a lot from the NBA commissioner, David Stern. For whatever reason, he was so generous with his time and advice for me, and he had a really good way of, 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 of teaching and um, and uh, and there was some give and take, you know, in, in our relationship through the years. I remember though early on, and uh, may have been our first meeting, probably our second, because it was an expansive meeting. Uh, but um, I was telling him about our arena. See, so, you know, we had an NBA ready arena in, in in that had been built in two thousand two, and this is two three years later, and we had no tenant. And I kept thinking, you know, someone in this town is going to notice that we don't have a tenant pretty soon. Pretty soon they're going to somebody's going to get upset. All we were having was sell-out concerts, but we didn't have really a team that, that, that fit the stature of that building. And I was telling him we had an NBA arena, we got plenty of dates. And finally, he 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 asked what he thought was the gotcha question. He said, How much debt do you have on that arena? And I said, None. We paid cash. And I remember he looked at me like I'd invented plutonium or something. <laughs> Because he had never heard of, and I, to this day, I don't think it has ever existed, no city, no entity has ever built an arena debt-free. But here's the the critical point. We were a small market trying to get a franchise. The, what every city or entity wants is trying to get a team is they want someone to come in there and help them pay off that note. And here I was able to say, we don't need you to pay off the note. I and mean, we don't want to lose money. We open the doors. We'd like, you know to. To you know, get some money back so we don't lose money on operations. Well, I don't need any money from you to help me pay off that debt. And that was a critical component of Oklahoma City's ability to get an NBA franchise. There are cities in this, in America, I could name a couple, but there may be a lot more. Teams have relocated and they're still paying off on the arena. For not only the arena that doesn't exist because they've torn it down, but the team that's not even there anymore, and so you know, getting back to the to the genius that was Ron Norick and setting up the original Maps proposal, he set up this kind of pay-as-you-go philosophy, and it takes us seemingly forever to build a project. I mean, when you're on, when you're involved in it day to day, and you know, I came from a news background where we had a deadline every four hours. It, it, I had no patience for the for the sl- slowness of of the Maps projects construction wise but i see the wisdom of it and it was great to go to voters and express to them that there'd be no debt when we built this project but when i saw commissioner stern light up i realized that you know it was probably no accident that we had we had built the bit the building with no debt and i didn't realize till that moment what a critical component that was going to be in
0: oklahoma city's future that's wonderful um obviously i'm hundred percent with you on, on the debt thing. Kimra has always operated with as little or no debt as we can, not because we think there's anything wrong with it. It's just very hard to manage when you're saddled with that. Um, when, especially where, where we're located in Oklahoma, where our, our economy goes up and down mm-hmm. with the price of a barrel of oil and our business goes up and down with the price mm-hmm. of a barrel of oil. But I heard something else in that story that, that, that struck me. And that is that you, you know, you had a vision, vision for Oklahoma City, part of that vision was, you know, we should have a, we're, I, I remember, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but I remember you, a, a quote from you at some point that we were an NBA league city, you know, we were a major league city, we needed a major league team or something like that. I'm probably, mm-hmm. probably misquoting you a little bit. And and in, in the effort to get that, you found a way, you had a way to differentiate us from other markets that mattered to somebody that you needed to be on board with that vision. And I think that's something that's critical. And when we talk about illuminating the vision, even within our organization, even within people that we have positional power over, there's, there still needs to be something that differentiates what we're doing from just the rank and file of everything for people to get excited about, for people to be on board with. And that that's just, a, that's phenomenal that, that we had that. And, you know, I was here the whole time, but we don't hear all the things that are going on in the background. And most of the time, you just wake up one morning and hey, we have an NBA team. That's awesome. <laughs> and very much enjoyed going to the games, and, and hope we get to go to them some more pretty soon. If uh, you know, if if you had an opportunity to sit down, uh, a lot a lot of, of the people that that the foundation is is working with and trying to reach are young leaders. There are so many people coming up in leadership. And a lot of us old guys, you don't mind if I lump you into the old guy group? No, nope, not at all. A lot of us old guys um, had to learn a lot of the things that we learned the hard way. Um, sometimes it cost us, uh, uh, you know, setbacks in our career or, or you know, time with our families. I mean, we've all made a lot of mistakes. If you had a group of, of young leaders uh, that, that aspired to, to do great things and, and they would, they, and you could sit with them for a small amount of time, Tell me one thing that you would tell them, um, that you would try to impart to them, hoping that maybe they wouldn't have to take the long way around mm-hmm. it that you and I maybe have had to take. Yeah, I, I think I would, of all the things I could
1: choose to answer that question, I think that the importance of how you spend your time comes to, comes to mind. Um, you know, the, this world is full of inequities, and we could sit here and, and we could list them. But everybody's got the same amount of time. Not everybody has the same amount of money. Not everybody has the same amount of you know good looks. No matter everybody has uh, almost anything else. Everything else seems like it's different. But time is the is the one unifying thing that everybody has. And I've also noticed that what you know is based on what you do. And so if you let's just grab something out of the air. Let's just say you spend all your free time watching Star Trek reruns. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing. I'm just suggesting let's just say you did that you would be an expert on Star Trek. Mm, I mean, you, you would know so much about Star Trek. But it's probably not the type of knowledge that you're going to be able to create value from an employer. It would be a pretty specific job description if, if, that, if that mattered to you. It's probably not going to make you a better member of a family, a, a better son, a better daughter, a better, a better you know, father. And so... You need to figure out what's important to me, what's really important. And I think most people would say, well, my family's important, my religion's important. And you need to make sure that you're spending your time on what you think is important. And if you're professionally motivated, it needs to be on the type of attributes that the person in positional power is looking for. Um, and, and so you need, be, you need to be carrying yourself and spending your time and developing the type of material of, uh, of material. Uh, that is going to help you achieve what you hope to achieve, um, and in every genre, there there is a there is a certain uh, vocabulary, a certain lexicon. I mean, if, if I walked and addressed the employees of Kimray, and I started talking, and I didn't know that was an, an MX 484, and everybody in the audience knew it was an MX 485, I would completely blow it as a, as a leader at Kimray. Everybody in the audience would know. And so you've got to do your homework as a leader. I mean, you've, you've got to have the ins and outs and the vocabulary that clearly demonstrates to the followers that you know what you're talking about because they will catch that and, you know, it's like a, like a creepy doll with a pen. I mean, that's, they'll always remember the time that you called whatever it was something that was wrong. Oh, and so spend your time wisely and, and make sure you know what you're talking about when you're talking to your followers, because they will, they will see that, uh, that, that you don't know what you're talking
0: about if you slip up. That's fantastic. All right, one last question before we run out of time. I ask every guest on the podcast this question, regardless of what we're talking about, mm-hmm. and that is tell me about the worst job you ever had.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I've, I've, I've been pretty lucky, um, uh, and, you know, I, I started working when I was 13, and it was actually legal for a 13-year-old to work back then. I got a job at Lake Hefner Golf Course, and they let me play free, and they made me 50 cents an hour, and I would straighten hats in the pro shop or whatever. But I thought that was a great job. I mean, that was the dream of a lifetime to be able to, to work in a situation like that. Um, and, you know, then I, then I started working in the restaurant sometimes, and I became this kind of jack-of-all-trades. If somebody went go on vacation, they'd move me around. So I spent one week as the janitor at Lake Hefner Golf Course, and so that meant for that week, I had to sweep the floors, clean the urinals, you know, wax everything down, and, you know, after a week of that, I thought, man, I'm glad I don't have to do this next week, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, you know, I worked at the driving range, I picked up golf balls, you know, when it was cold, or it was hot, or it was late at night, and, you know, you get hit by a ball sometimes, I mean, there there's all sorts, but none of that bothered me as as, as much as, as as that one week. Um I have a friend of mine who's known me since I was in first grade, and there was one summer I spent selling grandfather clocks at a retail store in Penn Square, and he says, you know, that's the only real job you've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to the, yeah, I guess so. And it was only a few weeks. So I, I've been really lucky to be able to find endeavors that I enjoyed and, and, uh, and you know, and, and thought were fulfilling.
0: So I've, I've been really lucky in that regard. Ah, That's fantastic. Mick, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun, and and you said some things that are really, really important for leaders. Uh, so this has been a great time. I just appreciate you being here. Yeah, well, thanks for asking, and uh, I love talking about things that that
1: uh, I don't get to talk about as much anymore. So you you've you've allowed me to do that. So thanks for having me
0: on. So. Again, just for our listeners, Mick's got a book out, The Next American City. I'm sure you can get that on Amazon or anywhere else you might might buy a book. You might uh, pay attention. You might get to hear him speak someplace. And, uh, and you can check out his movie again, Oklahoma City, The Boom, The Bust, and The Bomb. It's an excellent, excellent film. Thank you for joining us today for Word from the Herd. It's been great talking to Mick Cornett, and it's been great hearing what he has to say. And we look forward to talking with all of you next time. Thank you for joining us today on Word from the Herd, a production of the Kimmel Foundation. For more information about the Kimmel Foundation, visit us at thekimmelfoundation.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at The KimmelFDN. Please share this podcast and join us again next week for another Word from the Herd.